appreciate it too. Enjoy it and appreciate it. Welcome to you. Thank you for being here this morning and uh, trust it will be a blessing to you as you'll be a blessing to us. We're thankful that uh, you took the time to be with us and especially for those that drove up from Alabama and got up so early this morning. And uh, we're looking forward to the fellowship after the service and the meal to come. Hopefully we'll get done a little bit early today. And I know that at Tracy's church, they're, they're going a little early, and so they're working to get out early so they can get down here in time so we won't have to sit around and be hungry for a long time. So anyway, first time through it, we're trusting it'll all work out, and uh, we'll get the bugs worked out, and maybe the next time it'll, it'll flow a little bit smoother. I did call my wife just, uh, or I called my daughter actually, and she, right before I come in the service, and she said that my wife's blood pressure had come up just a little bit from 98 to 113. So it's, it's uh, making a little bit of progress there, so that was good. And uh, I guess the scary thing for, for me is, that, I don't know if you remember a couple of, has it been about three years ago, I guess, maybe four, I don't remember now, but it was during December um, that Janet went in on a weekend uh, for, uh, was feeling kind of the same symptoms that she has now, except this intense pain in the pit of her stomach. But she had the nausea and all that other stuff along with it. Well, it all, just to make the long story kind of short, it all turned out that because she's been on steroids for so long, she's adrenally insufficient now, which means she has to be on uh, steroids. Is it steroids? I'm doing it right. Yeah. The rest of her life. Her body won't produce them on its own. She's been on them for so long, her own adrenal gland has shut down, and so now she has to take the medication. And it was of such a nature, and it's an interesting story, but, I mean, had she not had some events fall into place, the doctor told her on Monday morning, he said, if you would not have come in and found out what was wrong, you would have died at home that night. He said, you wouldn't have lasted. And he said, do you know Dr. So-and-so? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, his mother died from the exact same thing. So she was very fortunate. Well, anyway, these symptoms she's having now are very similar and the same, and so that's why it was kind of a concern here, uh, saying, go to the ER, you think you can wait it out, so we're just kind of waiting to see. Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 7, and for those of you that are guests, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, some of the highest... Uh, if not the highest ethical teachings that Jesus ever brought forth, teachings concerning his gospel message and regarding that gospel message, you might remember that it was the gospel of the kingdom that he came preaching. And he said in Matthew 3, Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Same message that John the Baptist, his predecessor, taught and proclaimed to the Jewish nation. And so, following upon this, beginning in chapter 5, we find that there were multitudes that were following the Lord, amongst them his disciples, and he called his disciples out apart, set them down, and began to teach them these principles surrounding his kingdom. And essentially what it had to do with was the conduct, the moral character that was to depict one who would be a citizen of this kingdom that he was establishing and that he was proclaiming as having drawn near or was at hand. And we've looked at the beginnings of these principles, the Beatitudes, the kind of person that we are to become or to be if we expect to be a participant in this kingdom of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also saw that in verse 20 that there was a righteous standard that had to be met 
if one was to attain to and be a participant in this kingdom. And that standard was it simply had to exceed or superabound beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so the point of the thing was is that the scribes and the Pharisees had a standard of righteousness. And that was well known throughout the Jewish nation. But the standard that the Lord set for those who would be participants in his kingdom had to be of an even higher standard than that. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were looked upon as, you know, kind of the, the elites of Israel concerning righteousness and obedience to the law. And now the Lord here is telling them, well, you must exceed that and go far beyond. And so as he went on through chapter 5, chapter 6, we've seen the Lord introducing several uh, items of teaching regarding what they had experienced previously under the law and maybe somewhat under the oral tradition and teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees as opposed to what Jesus was telling them. And this was the higher standard that he was, he was setting forth. Now, many have said, you know, this is, this is just not a possibility. People can't live up to such a standard today. This, this has got to be for some other period. So this must be something yet in the future. This must be for when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom. Then this is how people will live. And this is the kind of, you know, conduct that we can expect then. But I think we've fairly well established that the Lord is telling us this is for now. This is for today. And that being the case, then one would ask the question, how then can it be possible that we could ever live to such a high standard? How could we ever attain to such conduct and living as he expresses here? <clears throat> and one of the things that we come to a conclusion to was, you can't do this apart from God's Holy Spirit, apart from the Lord's intervention in our lives and making it possible for us as we walk before the Lord and live a life filled with His Spirit, can we even live such a life? As a matter of fact, for one uh, not to live such a life, called it living in the realm of the ungrieved spirit. Now let me say that one more time. To live this kind of life as expressed here in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is to live in the realm or to live our daily life or to walk in the realm of the ungrieved spirit. In other words, if we are walking in the fullness of God's spirit, then we can live in obedience to these principles that he set forth for us. But to walk in disobedience, then is to grieve God's Holy Spirit. And to grieve God's Holy Spirit means we do not walk in his power. We have not the power then to attain to these such high standards and do the things that he's represented to us here. So all that the Lord is calling us to here and calling his disciples to here is a life of committed obedience to him. He is the Lord. He is the master. They are the disciple. They are the slave. They are to walk in obedience to him. And so we found then, coming to chapter 7 of Matthew, we looked at this idea of judging last week. Judge not that ye be not judged. And we saw that that was a, a principle the Lord set forth that we're not to, we're, we're not to assume <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the office of a judge. Whether that means a literal office of a magistrate, as some believe, and I did find one other prominent commentator, Matthew Henry, that believed the same thing as I had mentioned earlier, uh, about Govet, that he felt like this was a, a literal office being spoken of here. We're not to assume the office of being a judge as a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
Others hold that he's speaking more along the lines of censoriousness. That is, we are to not to be hypercritical, or as we would say it, nitpicking of others. And of course, we see that kind of brought out in these verses following when he talks about the beam and the moat. Looking at that speck of dust in someone else's eye when you've got a beam in your own eye. Now, if you look over at Romans chapter 2 for just a moment, and we see this principle of judging being expressed here, when Paul says, Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. Now, that's a pretty strong statement. And evidently, Paul believed what Jesus taught here because he said, you judge, and that's an inexcusable thing. And the reason it's inexcusable, he says, for wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. Why do you condemn yourself? For thou that judgest doest the same things. Now, I find this verse nothing more than exactly what Jesus said over here in verses 1 and 2 in the Sermon on the Mount that he was preaching. You're, you are inexcusable when you judge someone else because in all likelihood, the prospect is, is that you have a beam in your own eye while you're trying to point out a little speck of dust in your brother's eye. And then if you would turn over to James chapter 3, James chapter 3 and verse 1. A similar statement here where he is saying, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now, we see expressed back here in Matthew chapter 7 this idea of the kind of condemnation that he's talking about, this stricter judgment, because those who render judgment have a principle that they need to face up to. And that principle is, is that if you judge, you be sure that you're going to be judged back on the same standard, the same level of judgment. And so we find in verse 3, you know, in essence, he's telling us there it's easier to see a speck of dust in someone else's eyes than it is to see the bigger problem that we have in our own eye, that beam. And so we came to the conclusion, you know, that most of the time, when we're looking at someone else and we see a fault in them, that little speck that we're trying to point out and make a corrective measure for is, is due to the fact that we cannot see clearly enough because of the beam that's in our own eye. And he tells us that because of verse, verse 4. He says, how are you going, and verse 5. He says, how are you going to say to your brother, then let me pull the mote out of your own eye when you've got a beam in your own? You hypocrite. First, cast out the beam out of your own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly. That is the ultimate issue. How am I going <coughs> to see clearly if I haven't dealt with the own issues of my, of my own life, that which is in my own eye? But the whole thing turns then on that little expression, thou hypocrite. And we've seen this word used earlier in this sermon. And we saw that it meant pretty much what you think it means. Literally, it meant a stage actor. Somebody who walked up on stage and began acting out something that was totally contrary to the person they actually were in, re in life. In other words, when they stepped down off the stage, you know, they were the person you and I are. But when they stepped up on the stage, they began to act, and they were something else. That's the little expression of the word hypocrite. 
So all he's telling them here is that when you are pointing out something in somebody else's eye, most of the time you're playing the stage actor. You're trying to be something that you aren't really. And that's what Paul was telling us there in chat Romans 2.1. He says, you that judge, don't you know you're condemning yourself because you do the same thing? And so he's putting down this whole idea for a kingdom disciple. The one who is aspiring to, to be a participant in this kingdom that Jesus is speaking about can't act that way and shouldn't talk that way. And that, by the way, goes to every level of relationship that we have in life. Now, we, we're, that was a review, basically, of last week and maybe, maybe a little bit additional there. But what he's trying to tell us here, then, is that in acting like a hypocrite, what we think we are doing as an act of kindness to someone else by kindly pointing out their fault really is a... Uh, what they're really doing is turning it back on themselves and trying to boost their own ego and build themselves up. And all he's telling us is, brethren, this isn't to be in my kingdom. We don't act like that around here. And quite frankly... In the practical outworking of the body of Christ, when God's people are assembled together, we meet together, we're not to act like that either. Here. We're not to do that in our home or at school or at work or wherever we are. Now, in verse 6, he comes to a rather interesting statement there. When he says, give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Now, I had typed out this nice, uh, I want to say, let me back up and say, this, this verse is, what they would call a chiasmus or a chiasm. It's where you have a couplet that is out of order for us in English. So let's look at it the way a Middle Easterner would read it. I had this all typed out real nice, and I was going to print them off and hand them to you, and, man, I just totally forgot it. But, the, but it still looks good. The paper looks nice. I just want you to know that. So let's look at it this way. The first one, give not that which is holy unto the dogs, is the first part of the couplet. The last part that belongs with the first part, and turn again and rend you or tear you. So read it that way. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, lest they turn again and rend you. Then the, the middle portion belongs together. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. <coughs> now, when you read it that way, it makes perfect sense. And I was amazed at the commentators who, who talked about the swine who would get a hold of that little pearl and eat it and find out it didn't taste good and then turn <laughs> and want to want to trample them. You know, if you've been around a farm at all, you'll know that a hog would sniff on the pearl and realize it wasn't worth eating, and he'd just move on. And, of course, in the end, he would just end up trampling it in the mud and the mire, and, and it, he, would, he would not see the value of the pearl. The dog, on the other hand, would take whatever you give him, and, of course, we can't think in terms of our little nice domesticated pets that we have in our house. But a Middle Eastern dog or a wild pack of dogs or the curs that run loose through town, 
when they get a hold of something, you know that they tend to rip and tear what they get a hold of. Now, I want us to do a little, a little research here, a little study on this word on the dogs. <coughs> okay? Turn with me back to Exodus 22 and verse 31. Exodus chapter 22, verse 31. <clears throat> now, this is, of course, regarding those under the law. But notice what he says about dogs. He says, And ye shall be holy men unto me. Neither shall ye eat any flesh that is torn of beasts in the field. Ye shall cast it to the dogs. Now, this wasn't your household pet here, but it was the dogs that ran loose through the countryside. Then I want us to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 18. And notice what he says. He says, Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore nor the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow, for even both these are abomination unto the Lord thy God. They weren't to even bring the price of a dog, referring to a male prostitute. So you find the word dog here does not have a very pleasant, a very pleasant expression. Now, having said that, Turn, turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And look at verse 16. Now, of course, this is a, a well-known psalm that has reference to things that occurred during the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll see in verse 16, these expressions, many of these expressions leading up to this. He says, for dogs have compassed me or assembled around me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, so you understand here, just imagine the day the Lord was crucified. Who was surrounding the Lord Jesus that day? Well, you had the closest up to him, the Roman officials that were physically actually carrying out the crucifixion. But prior to that, you had the religious leaders of Israel who were encouraging them to put the Lord Jesus to death. And then if you look down at verse 20, he says, Deliver my soul from the, from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. That is, my darling, my life, that which is dear to me from the power of the dog. Or the word power there is literally, it's the paw. The paw of the dog. Well, of course, he's referring there then to the power or the strength of the dog. Who's the dog here? Who is he asking him to deliver him from the power of the dog? Evidently, it would refer to the devil. That's my thinking. If you look at the next verse, he says, save me from the lion's mouth. And we know that the devil is depicted as a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour regarding God's people. And so that's the only connection I have there. Now, turn ahead to Isaiah chapter 56. Excuse me. Now, this is a chapter, this entire chapter dealing with the millennium and 
the Gentiles who would be beneficiaries and benefits of the blessings that would be here during the millennial rule of Christ, that is, during the reign of the Messiah. Now, notice what he says in verse 1. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord, that would be the Gentile, speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbath, and choose the things that please me. And take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house, and within mine walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. Hey, that's a strong statement. He will give to the stranger and to the eunuchs a better place, he says, in mine house than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also, in verse 6, the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain. And that, word, that expression, my holy mountain, is an expression for his kingdom. Mountain being a frequent expression for a kingdom. And he says, I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. The Lord God, which gathers the outcasts of Israel, saith... Yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered unto him. So there are many yet to come. Now watch here in verses 9, 10, 11. He says, All ye beasts of the field come to devour, yea, all ye beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. Okay, now the watchmen here. They're the watchers over the nation of Israel. They were to be the spiritual shepherds and the leaders who, who guarded the nation to ensure that they would be obedient to the Lord. That's what they were supposed to be doing now. So that when the Lord did send his prophet, his Messiah, that they would be prepared. But he says here in verse 10, they're blind and they're all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs and cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber, yea, they are greedy dogs, <coughs> which can never have enough, and they are shepherds that cannot understand. Now, I, that, again, I say is strong language. They all look to their own way, every one for his gain from his quarter. That is, from his own area. Now, if the Lord had to deal with people like that in his day, in the Old Testament here, in this, in this day, and there were leaders over the nation of Israel that were of such a, a character and state, would it be fair to ask the question, are there such today? Over God's house? Over God's people? leading his church, whom God would use the same kind of language to describe today? And I think it's very, very possible. Matter of fact, very likely that that be the case. But the point we get at here is he's describing them with utter terms of contempt. And one of those terms he uses is a, a dog that cannot bark and a greedy dog. Oh, man, I got so many words here I want to look at. And, uh, Proverbs chapter 9, we'll go back just a little bit. 
Now, this is just a general expression regarding the, what, what we're talking about, the subject matter of verses 1 through, all the way through verse 6. And he says in, in chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, he says, He that reproves a scorner, that is, you go to pull a moat out of his eye, gets to himself shame. And he that rebukes a wicked man gets himself a blot. Well, that does sound an awful lot like what the Lord Jesus was saying. You judge, and it's going to come right back to you in the same measure that you judged. It's going to be measured right out to you. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. And then I want us to look over now at Romans chapter 14. And, and verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 says, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations, that is, not to passing judgment on his opinions. That's what doubtful disputations means. Receive ye this one, that is, take to, take to yourself, receive to yourself this one who is weak in the faith. Now notice what he says in verse 2. For one believeth that he may eat all things, and another who is weak eats herbs or vegetables. One says, I can eat all things. He's the one strong in faith. The other one says, no, you should only eat vegetables. He's the one who's weak. Let not him that eateth all things, despise him that only eats vegetables. And let not him which eats not meat, that is, he only eats vegetables, despise him that does eat, that sees all things is okay. God hath received him. So in verse 4, notice how he sums that little situation up. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Who? Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Who, who is the one that he's able to make stand? The one strong in the faith. He'll stand strong at the judgment seat of Christ. So what is he telling us here then? Back in Matthew chapter 7. Give not that which is holy... To the dogs. And I dare say it was not a pleasant term that he was using to describe those who were judging one another. And he's telling a disciple, one who is a seeker of the Lord's kingdom, to not give the holy things, <coughs> the sacred things, unto the dogs. Why? Because a dog will turn on you. And he says he will tear and, or rend. And then neither are you to give it to the hog. I titled this message Dogs and Hogs. Dogs and swine didn't sound as good. Don't give, he says, these things, pearls, to a hog. Because a hog who has a very, very 
sensitive nose. We'll just gloss right over a pearl. And he'll just go right on rooting around in the ground, trying to find a root or an acorn or whatever's buried. And he'll just keep rooting until he finds what he wants. And he'll just totally ignore the pearl. And I think what the Lord is trying to tell us here, then, is that we are to hold to ourselves and be wise and discerning about what we share with others. You see, some are not able to receive the things the Lord's speaking of here. Some are not able to accept the Lord's teaching. As a matter of fact, when we get done with the sermon, we find out that the scribes and the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with it. They weren't able to receive it. Now, the people, they marveled at him because it says he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes did. But we are to be careful how and with whom we share these things. Look, one, once more, we'll do two more verses. Go back to Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs 26 and verse 11. And, of course, all this relates back to the next verse we're going to look at in 2 Peter, chapter 2. He says there in verse 11, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. If you share something with a dog... He does, and, and it's something that's sacred, something that's holy. He doesn't know how to handle it. Now, you may remember, and we won't turn there, but you remember in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul, when he was writing to the church at Philippi, he said, beware of the dogs. He is referring to the viciousness of those who refuse the kingdom gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was referring to those who refused Paul's message and those who were violently antagonistic towards the message that he was preaching. But the warning that he gives here in Proverbs as well as over here in, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, he says here in verse 22, it has happened unto them... According to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now, you say it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. Back up just a little bit to, and we'll go to... Um, it's hard to not go back a whole a long ways, but we don't have time to do it. But if we would back up even to just verse 17. He says here, these are wells without water. Clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved. Well, the English says for the, forever, but the literally it's for the age. And if we had time to go back and study this, we'd find out that for the age means for the coming age, the one that's yet to come after this one, which is the kingdom age, the age in which Christ will rule over the earth. So just keep that little thought in mind as Peter is talking about these who are wells without water, which, by the way, a well without water is a worthless well, and a cloud that, that is a tempest is not a pleasant sight. We're looking for the nice cloud on a, on a sunny day to give us a little shade. But notice what he says in verse 18. He says, For when they, these wells without water, these clouds with a tempest, 
When they speak great welling, uh, swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they, same people, the wells without water, these people promise them liberty, they themselves are the slaves of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, so you say, well, who could the way, uh, the they people, the them people, who is it that they could possibly be? Well, here's a clear indicator that these were believers who had been overcome by corruption because they've been overcome. An unsaved person doesn't need to be overcome. He's already a, a sinner by nature. He is who he is by birth. These people have been overcome. And then he says he is brought into bondage that is, into slavery, to his own sins. Then in verse 20, he says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions or the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they, the same they again, are again entangled therein and overcome, again, Unsaved people aren't overcome. They are where they are because of birth. A believer can be overcome by his own sin. And so he's telling them, if this one goes back, turns back, and gets entangled again in the affairs of the world and the pollutions or the defilements of the world, as he says it here, he says the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. And then he gives us verse 22. For, or but, it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again. Now, what are we trying to say here? That if, as I am asserting here, that these people whom Peter is talking about are believers who have been overcome by their sin and they've become entangled in the world and they've been polluted by the defilements of this world and they have, like a dog, gone back to his own vomit... Is it any wonder then that Jesus tells us back here, don't give your holy things to the dogs? And I dare say he's not talking about the unsaved world. He's talking about being discerning in who you share the treasures, the sacred things, the precious things of his kingdom with those who have no heart or mind or desire to hear. To receive the gospel of the kingdom means that we are to embrace all that Jesus taught us concerning his kingdom. But rather today is, the popular message is, is well, you just believe on the Lord Jesus and, you know, and when you die, you'll go to heaven. That's the end of it. Don't, don't have to worry about anything else. And as I've often used in an illustration, you know, we get the idea then, well, I've asked Jesus to be my Savior, so I just sit here and just wait for, you know, wait till I die, wait till Jesus comes, I'll go to heaven, don't really have to worry about anything, don't have to do anything, I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven. Whereas, rather, the plain scriptural teaching of what a disciple is to be is a person of action and life and doing, and obeying, and believing everything that the Lord Jesus has taught us. Now, this is not the be-all, end-all of this sermon. You know, there's been a lot before this, and there's a little bit more to come after this. But we find when we get to the end of the, end of the message, to the end of the sermon, you know, he tells us there that 
Some are going to get a surprise. Because he's telling some in verse 21, not everyone that calls me Lord is going to enter into the kingdom of the heavens. Who is? He that doeth the will of my Father which is in the heavens. That's the one. And that's the message of this sermon here. Everything he's teaching his disciples as obedience in your daily active life, as you live and walk in this world, though you be not of it, you're to act like a citizen of my kingdom and conduct yourself this way. And the plain point of fact is, is that we can do it. I am convinced. Now, if you'd asked me several years ago, I'd have said, this is nuts. I don't even know how anybody could do this. I mean, I was in a battle for 20, over almost 25 years of my life, trying to figure out, if I'm saved and going to heaven, why does, why do I got all this other stuff I've got to do? And I could, never could get the victory. It just wouldn't happen. And then the Lord opened my eyes to some truths in the Scripture, and as I began to understand about the nature of his kingdom and what was yet to come and the rule that he was going to bring to this earth, and that if I wanted to be a part of that, these were the things that applied to my life. And then I realized one day, I remember sitting at the kitchen table. I didn't have a study at that time, so every Saturday, dragged my books out and stuff to the kitchen table, and there I sat. And it was on a Sunday morning, I think, still studying, and I realized, you know what? I can do this. I can do this not because I finally figured out a way to do it, but I know I can do this because two things. Primarily, one is I know the Lord is not asking me to do anything that he's not going to give me the power and the enablement to do. And the other thing I realized was God's given me of his spirit to empower me, to enable me to do what he's asking me to do. Now you say, well, it's been great ever since, huh? No, no. I've uh, tripped once or twice today. (laughs) No, the Lord has made clear provision for us in his word. And that is that if we confess our sins, our failures, our shortcomings, then he is very quick to forgive the one who is seeking to walk on this path and walk on this line as he heads towards his kingdom to restore and to re-empower that one. And, And then for the first time, I began to find out what it was like to live as an overcomer, to live in a victorious manner. And I I love seeing the smiles of some of you older folks who said, well, yeah, great. I've, I've been there. I know what you're talking about. You know, one of the big fears I had is that I would get to be, and I hope, I hope it happens. I get to be 75 or 80 years old and I'd still be fighting those same struggles, still beating myself up every day, wondering why do I keep doing that? I'd get so mad because I couldn't figure it all out. Then it all came to light. And so I look at this passage like this. I realize, of course, judge not so that you won't be judged. Not an easy thing. I think the easiest thing, I've thought this many, many years ago, I thought, boy, the easiest thing in the whole world is just to look at somebody else and see their faults. 
How easy is that? I mean, it is, it is so simple, so easy. I can point them out right and left. You can look at me and see them glaringly. Why can't I see them the same way myself? And yet, Jesus is telling us, take the beam out of your own eye first. And by the way, he's not telling us, don't, don't judge ever. Because he goes right on in that same passage and tells us in verse 5, take the beam out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the moat, little speck of dust, out of your brother's eye. I think part of what the Lord is telling us here is that, you know, believers are to work together in this thing, to complement one another, to build one another up, to be an encouragement to one another, so that we will stay on the straight and narrow as we get over here in chapter 7, and for me it's on turn the page, so that we might enter in through that very narrow, straight gate. And that's our job. And we can do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that's ours to be a child of God. We thank you that you have given us the freedom in Christ to obey, to serve you with the utmost of our abilities. We thank you for the gift and ministry of your Holy Spirit to enable us to do these things that you've called us to do, which looks so imposing, so difficult, Father. And we're grateful that you've allowed us to do it. Now, Father, we pray that as we sing this invitation hymn, we pray that you'll speak to hearts this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.